Father, there is such wisdom in your word. In these stories, these ancient stories um, contain treasures. And uh, we, we, we confess we can't even recognize the treasure when we see it. And so we need, again, we ask for your spirit to be in our midst to open us up to us, the treasures, and, and that you would lock them in our hearts so that they might animate how we live in the world. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the, the thesis of the Christian life is that grace changes us. That the grace of God is transforming. It doesn't just change us, it's changing the whole universe. It's building a kingdom, and it's coming by grace, by the grace of God in Christ for the whole world. Now, that's not what you would expect. Now, so so what, what's grace? Just a kind of a basic definition would be undeserved favor, blessing, gift, you might say, undeserved favor. And we don't believe that good things come in that sort of way. We, we, we cling to kind of the law where we want to do things in order to accomplish the great things. That's how you get the good things in life. L- listen to what Eugene Peterson says. He says, energy and ambition, single-minded purpose, an undistracted, unswerving race for the finish line, eye-on-the-ball concentration, go a long way in making money, acquiring academic degrees, winning wars, climbing Mount Everest, and hitting home runs, okay? We all agree with that. That's what it's going to take. It's going to take grit, concentration, hard work, relentless effort. He says, but these things have very little to do with the mature life. You can hit a lot of home runs and be a jerk, be immature. You can be a PhD, and, and be arrogant and haughty and very immature. You can be a billionaire and be impossible to be around. In fact, you might say the more you, you acquire in, in that regard, the more impossible you become to be. Look at the people at the height of their power, celebrities and athletes, and oftentimes they become different people, almost more immature. What Peterson is saying is, Something different builds a human life. And what that something is, is grace. The grace of God in Christ is God's plan A for creation. And there's no plan B. It's all God's grace. Now, again, we, don't, we have trouble believing this like parents. How many of us believe that we can change our children's hearts through the law? If you follow my rules, then blessings will flow. You need to just keep kind of beating the law, yelling the law. This is what you need to do. Brush your teeth every night. Brush your teeth. Go to sleep. Stop talking to your sibling. Stop hitting your sibling. If I can just kind of bring the law of the hammer, the, the, the hammer of the law down hard enough, then they'll change. But it doesn't work that way. They may, you may get them to conform outwardly, but you're not going to get inside their heart. The way that we change as people is through grace. That's the Christian claim. And it's surprising, isn't it? You, you, you don't think that's how people change. 
it feels kind of weak. It's surprising and unexpected. You'll notice the title of the sermon this morning is Grace's Wiles. You know, like a while. It's a, it's a plan. There's cunning involved. There's surprise. It sort of hits you, comes in the back door, and surprise, it's there. It's, it, grace operates in a surprising way. Again, Eugene Peterson says, he, he likens grace to water. He says, like, imagine you're at a swimming pool, and you, you move your arm through the, the water, and you think, there's no way that this water here has the buoyancy to support, you know, a 200-pound person in the water. There's no way it can do that. And then when you get in the water itself, and if you really, like, learn to rest in the water, it can actually hold you up. Like, you can lay on your back and float in the water. And you realize that, actually, there's quite a bit of buoyancy. It, it holds. So it is with grace. From the outside, no way. You can't build a life on that. But once you get in, you begin to realize, this is powerful. This is transforming. And so, one of the ways we kind of immerse ourselves, right, in the waters of grace, is by hearing stories of grace. And we're going to get a three-week story, a three-week kind of case study in how grace can bring about transformation. So that's, we're, we're beginning that this morning. You see, this is part one. There's two more parts. Is, so keep coming back. We'd love for you to be back. And we're going to look at this topic of grace. And it's so important because this story here, this, this dramatic story, is going to give us a, sh- a snapshot into how God is working in our lives through Christ. But before we kind of get into it, let's, um, we need a quick review because there's layers and layers of, of context that, that, that backdrop to this. Remember, the family of faith. God has called Abraham and he's had these children. Successive, Abraham's long dead, but Jacob... Abraham's grandson, it now has all these children. And it's a contested home. It goes back even to Jacob's father, Isaac. There was favoritism there. And then Jacob has Rachel, who he loves, and Leah, who he's kind of stuck with. And, and, and the kids of Leah are kind of ignored by dad. And the kids of Rachel are just showered with blessings. And one of the sons, his favorite son, Jacob's favorite son, Joseph, the son of Rachel, precious Rachel, Jacob gets this coat of many colors, which really represented the inheritance. Jacob was saying, you are the the, the chosen one, and my inheritance is going to you. And so Joseph would flaunt that coat. And then Joseph starts having these dreams where 11 stars, like his 11 brothers, are bowing to him. And he starts sharing these dreams with his brothers, and they can't stand him. And they want to kill him. And they plan to kill him. And they throw him in a pit. And then they decide, let's not kill him. Let's sell him as a slave. And this is what they say. We'll see what becomes of his dreams. Of his dreams. We're bowing to him. Not going to happen. But let's not kill him because that's a little severe. Let's sell him as a slave to a foreign land. And they do that. They sell him as a slave to their cousins, the Ishmaelite slave traders. And off Joseph goes. Out of their life, you know, gone. The brothers think. And Joseph winds up uh, in a very good position as a slave in in Potiphar's house. But then he's accused of sexual assault. He's thrown in prison. He spent more than a decade in prison. And last week, we saw his dramatic rise to power in Egypt. He is, in this passage, 
functionally the most powerful man in the world. Egypt is the most powerful power in the world, and he's basically leading it. He's the prime minister, you might say. Second only to Pharaoh. And so that's, that's, that's what's happened. And now we get the dramatic encounter where Joseph's abusive brothers encountered their brother, now exalted, now in a position of power. Now he has their lives in his hand. And we're, that's what we're going to see today. And actually for the next three weeks, because this is going to go on for, for a long time here. But what I want us to see this morning um, is that uh, two things. The context for grace, the context in which grace operates, okay? And then the second thing is how grace approaches us, the approach of grace. So the context of grace and the approach of grace. Now, first, the context. And here's your answer to the context. You ready? Grace's context is dysfunction. That's where grace operates, in dysfunction. And here for the family of faith, it's, it's the family's dysfunction, there's still, every indication is that this family of faith is still dysfunctional. They're severed. Look at Jacob barking orders in verse 1. Jacob learned that the famine has come. Or, I'm sorry, they know that there's a famine there. They're starving and they're about to die. They learned that there's grain for sale in Egypt. And he said to his sons, why do you look at each other? <laughs> Stop staring at each other. Behold, there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So he's kind of barking orders at them. And then we see still preferential treatment that Jacob is exercising towards not Joseph, the other son of Rachel, his beloved wife, Benjamin. Look at verse 3. So 10 not 11, of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob didn't send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. And so the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. And so, so again, the dysfunction. Jacob is still treating one of his sons with preference and favoritism. And this has created all sorts of problems in this family. And it's still kind of breaking apart the family. And we see, look, look at verse 36. So go all the way to the end of the passage. When the brothers return, they, they leave Simeon in prison in Egypt. And we'll explain that in a sec. So Simeon's back in prison. The brothers have returned. And Joseph tells the brothers, I want you to bring Benjamin back the youngest. And, and Jacob, their father, said, you've bereaved me of my children. This is verse 36. Joseph is no more. Simeon now is no more. He's in prison in Egypt. Now you want me to take Benjamin? See, Simeon was left as collateral so that the brothers would come back with Benjamin. And so, but, but look at what Jacob's doing. He's like, I'm not sending Benjamin, right? I'm going to I'm going to helicopter parent Benjamin. He's not going out of my sight. He's under my control at all times. He's like, he's like 30-something now. He's under my control at all times. He's not leaving my sight. But Leah's children? Eh, Simeon. We'll cut our losses to preserve Benjamin. Benjamin's the one that matters. Again, the family has dysfunction. And here's the thing. You have dysfunction. 
I have dysfunction. We, we all have a dysfunction. We all feel at times, whether we admit it or not, we all feel as though we are beyond repair. Sure, there's things that maybe people know about. But there's things inside that nobody knows about. And it just feels so broken, so dysfunctional. And here's the thing. Christianity says, don't give up hope. You're not beyond repair. Other religions, I think, kind of do say good luck with that. Because their claim is what you, what you need is like a little adjustment, some revision, a few edits here. Like adopt a set of practices and kind of improve your life. And that's, that's basically what it provides. But Christianity says, no, you need a, com- you need a complete transformation. You need to be made into a new creation. You need to be born again, is what Christianity says. And you also need to be forgiven. We're going to sing about it in just a second, the Rock of Ages song. And it talks about, in that song, in that hymn, it talks about the double cure. The double cure that Christ brings. Jesus be the double cure. What's, what, what do we need to be saved from? We need to be saved from God's wrath. We need our sins to be forgiven. And we also need to be made pure. We need to be transformed. We need to be transformed. And Christianity offers both of those things. Forgiveness, transformation. See, the family of faith here has these compounding generational problems of favoritism that's just ripping them apart. Like sin always does. It rips us apart. And God, by His grace, is working to bring healing. And we're going to see it over the next few weeks. And we too need something radical. We need what Christianity offers. It's amazing grace. This is why we sing about it being amazing because it transforms us. You know, as, as Christians, one of the things I like to tell my kids is, you know, why, do you know why we're Christians, kids? Because mom and I need lots of forgiveness. You need forgiveness. And Christianity offers it. You can't find that anywhere else. You can't find grace. I also need to be totally transformed. Christianity offers it. And it comes by way of grace. That's the context. It's dysfun- Your dysfunction isn't keeping God's grace away. It's actually what draws him to it. To repair it. To fix. To transform. Okay. That's the first point. That's the context for grace. Now, I want us to consider how grace approaches us. And the first thing I want to say about this is grace comes at us in a disruptive way. It disrupts us. And we see that in the brothers here. Okay? Um, you know, sin, sin takes a toll on us. The brothers, you know, they're like, okay, we got Joseph out of the picture. We'll see what comes of his dreams. But how do you think their life was as they lived dishonored? Remember, their dad thinks that Joseph's dead. That's what they told him. How, how do you think they slept knowing what they had done to their brother? Listen to what Psalm 32 says. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. When I, when I did not speak of my sin, when I didn't confess my sin, when I kept it hidden, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Did you have, has anybody worked outside this past week? Sucks the life out of you, right? Sin, 
Unconfessed sin does the same thing. It zaps us. It makes us exhausted. It takes a toll. It makes us inactive. It puts us in sort of this coma state. And we actually see that here. Look, death is knocking on the door of this family as as it is the whole world in the form of the famine, right? Death is knocking. And what, what are the brothers doing? They're just looking at each other. That's what, that's what Jacob says, verse 1. Why do you look at one another? Right? That's, that's what sin is doing. It's making them inactive. It's making them immobile. And the problem for them is an unforgiven past. That's what they're dealing with. Listen to what one commentator says. The brothers have no room to act, no energy for imagination, no possibility of freedom. They're bound by the power of an unforgiven past immobilized by guilt, driven by anxiety. And so at the command of Jacob, they go to Egypt to get food. Verse 6. And Joseph was governor over the land, as we saw last week. He's risen to power. He was the one, look, look at verse 1. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. If you want food in the land of famine, you, you get it through one person, Joseph. And there he is. And Joseph's brothers come. And get, look at this. They bow themselves before him with their faces to the ground. The dream. The dream fulfilled. Well, actually not entirely fulfilled yet because there's one brother that's missing. Okay. Joseph saw his brothers and he recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Joseph, again, this is important, he recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. It's an incredible scenario, right? Joseph in his power being restored, the one who was cast out as a slave, left for dead, restored. And now his abusers, his brothers, are literally bowing at his feet in complete need of what he has to provide. It's incredible. But they don't recognize him because he was a boy when all of that happened. Like 20 years have gone by. He's a, he's, he's, he's a man. He's got, he's, he actually, he would have left kind of scraggly, little bit of a beard growing on a little teenage boy. And now he's shaven. He's got kind of the Egyptian power suit on. He's got gold. and he, he, He's unrecognizable. Look at what he says, verse 9, to them. You are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We're honest men. Your servants have never, your servants have never been spies, right? We're all honest men. Now, they haven't been honest with their father. They've been living under this lie that their brother is dead. He claims that they're spies. They deny it. He's talking roughly to them. We'll, we'll come back to Joseph's interaction here in a sec. They deny it, and then he insists. Look at verse 12. He said, no, Joseph said, it's the nakedness of the land. You guys are spies, and you're coming to figure out our vulnerabilities so that you can ta- attack us, take our food, and run off like bandits. That's what you're doing. That's what Joseph is saying. And they said, we, we're your servants. We're 12 brothers the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. 
But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes, to, comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. So Joseph says, we're going to send one of you back home to bring back your brother. The rest of you are going to stay in prison as collateral that you will come, that Benjamin comes back, or he doesn't know the name. The other one will come back. And then he throws them in prison. And so they get a three-day little taste of what Joseph experienced for more than a decade, being in the same Egyptian prison where Joseph was for, for, for his whole, the decade of his 20s. And as they are pondering their time in prison, they're mulling and their past sins, they feel, are catching up. And then Joseph says, he changes his mind over the course of these three days. We'll leave one here. The rest of you go back and bring Benjamin back to get your other brother. Look at verse 21. And then look, look, look at what they say as he's uh, telling them all this. Verse 21. They said to one another, in truth, we're guilty concerning our brother. They're speaking just to them amongst themselves, right? In that we saw the distress of his soul. When he begged us and we did not listen, that's why this distress has come upon us. See, they're, they're beginning to put the pieces together. This guilty conscience is beginning to rise. They're thinking, this is why this trouble has come upon us. God is, is punishing us for our sins. Their consciences are pricked and they're rightfully, they're rightfully fearful. They did a wicked thing and they're feeling the weight of that. And then in the midst of this conversation, Reuben. Remember Reuben? Reuben's the one that slept with his father's concubine and driven by both lust but also by a desire for power. It was, a way of, it, it was, a, it was an action that said, I'm, I'm the man now of this household. Step aside, Jacob. I'm your, your tribe leader. I'm your clan leader is what he was saying. But what happened after that? Every time Reuben speaks, has spoken since then, Nobody listens. He has no authority. He has no merit among the brothers. And look, the same here. Reuben said, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? He did say that. Remember, he said, we should not throw him in the pit. Let's not kill him. But you didn't listen. So now here comes the reckoning for his blood. Now, here's the thing about Reuben. He said we shouldn't do it. They had just sold him off. And did Reuben go and track down and buy back his brother? to make the situation right. No, he just said we shouldn't do it. And here he is again saying, shoulda, coulda, woulda. We, we should have not have done this. And Joseph locks up Simeon and they go their way. And look at what happens next. As the, so, the, so they leave Egypt. On their way back, Simeon's in prison. And look at verse 26. They, they loaded their donkey with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened up his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, my money's been put back, put back in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed. And they, turned, they were trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? 
I mean, I'm trying to think of a way to explain this. You're, you're in Target, and you knock down like a mannequin, and you get into all sorts of trouble with the management. The kids throw uh, plates down on the ground and break them. And then you walk out of the store, and you realize that your kids have thrown merchandise in there that you didn't pay for. What are we going to do? We, well, we go back. We go back and return it. But here's the problem. The land of Egypt may not be as forgiving as your customer service person at Target. If they stole money, they, off with Simeon's head, off with all of our heads, our, our life is in Egypt. That's the only place to find food. And now we're at odds with the source of that life, the man, Joseph. So they're, they're fearful and they're trembling. And they believe, and this is the first time they've used the word God in this whole story, the brothers. They're fearful, they're trembling. Is this God's judgment? And this is, this is what happens. When a person's life hangs in the balance, all of a sudden, a recognition of their failure and sin comes into sharp focus. When a person's life hangs in the balance, their, 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 their misdeeds, their failures, their sin comes into sharp focus. And, and so it is here. Let's keep going. Verse 29. When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, look look at what they're calling Joseph. The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, we're honest men. We've never been spies. We're 12 brothers, sons of our fathers. One is no more. The youngest is is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me. Take grain for the famine of your households and go your way and bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. They're obtaining this in verse 35. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. Dad's like, what? You stole grain from the only store that has it? He doesn't know what to do. They're, they're, they're panicked. And, and one of my sons is still in the prison back in Egypt. And then Reuben speaks up again. Remember Reuben? Then Reuben said to his, to his father, Kill my two sons if I don't bring them back to you, Dad. Put them in my hands. I will do it. I'm going to go get them, Dad. And Jacob says, no. Again, Reuben speaks, but nobody, it's just like hot air in the the room. It just, nobody does anything to what Reuben says. This is what I want you to see right now. There is turmoil in this family right now. There's turmoil. The brothers are freaked out. Dad is freaked out. This is disruptive for them. And, and this, is, this is God's grace pursuing them. This is God's grace pursuing them. It feels like to them God's judgment, doesn't it? That's what they're thinking. But this is God's love. This is God's grace pursuing them. If God is gracious, we too will be wrecked by our sin. and We will be driven to a merciful God. See, if we, if we reduce God's love, or just love in general, to what makes us feel good, that love is just sort of like puppies and rainbows, 
And it's easy for us to think that because we've kind of enshrined our own feelings, haven't we? We've made them sacred, untouchable, don't mess with them. Sometimes love messes with how you feel in an effort to give you deeper feelings and a transformed life. Like, that's what's happening, right? And that's what, that's what God's grace is doing in this pursuit, right? The, the fact that they're trembling points to the fact that sin is a serious matter, just like cancer or some kind of disease. And in order to be healed from a disease, you've got to be cut open, You've got to be operated on. There needs to be some type of surgery to break you apart before you're put back together. You know, gold, if it's going to be pure gold, it's going to be thrown in the fire. It's going to be melted. It's going to be obliterated in a sense and then put back together, purified. A good coach, a good trainer finds out an athlete's weaknesses, shortcomings, and hones in particularly with focus on those areas to make them a better athlete. That's, that's what love does to, to remake us, to transform us. And God is pursuing this family through Joseph. And that brings us, so, so, so Grace's approach to us, it feels disruptive as we're experiencing it come our way. It feels disruptive. But remember this. Its approach from God's vantage point is always discerning. Joseph is sort of functioning like God in this, because he's the one with power. He's the one that has been sinned against. And he is, well, let's see what he's doing. It's not really clear, is it? What's jo- is Joseph good or bad right here? What's he doing? Talking roughly? He's accusing them of things? He's throwing them in prison? What's, what's going on? So this is, this is the next point. So grace approaches us, it approaches us, it disrupts us, but it comes at us with God's wisdom and God's discernment. And we're going to see that as Joseph is exercising incredible God-given discernment as he approaches these brothers. Okay, like I said, it's, it's tempting to think maybe he's toying with them, he's being mean, it's like payback is sweet, and he's just got this rush of, of excitement. Yeah, they're, they're in my hands. What, can, how can I mess with them? But actually, that's not what he's doing. Joseph is architecting this masterful ruse to reconcile the family. We're going to see that over the next three weeks. It's, it's actually incredible. Uh, and that's what he's doing. He's extending to them love and not judgment. It, this, this is Grace's wiles at work, and it's going to unfold slowly over several chapters, the next three weeks. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to come at them with like surgical precision. Joseph is so careful. Now at first, like I said, that's not, it, that's not clear from the way Joseph is treating them. But we get a clue to it even here in this passage. Look at verse 21. What is Joseph's real motive? If we li- lift up the curtain of Joseph's heart and mind, what's actually going on? Well, we get a clue to that in this passage even. Look at verse 21. They said to one another, okay, remember, the brothers are talking to one another, kind of amongst themselves. Joseph is overhearing what they say. Listen to what they say. In truth, this is back in Egypt, we're guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul, and when he begged us, we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And again, Reuben with his, you know, answer, well, didn't I tell you we shouldn't sin against him? But you didn't listen. And so 
there's coming a reckoning for his blood. That's what this is. This is God's judgment. Now, here, look at this, verse 23. They did not know that Joseph understood them. Remember, we haven't, I don't know that we've said this all along the way, but remember, Joseph is a foreigner from a foreign land. He's, he's learned a new language in Egypt, and he's gotten quite fluent at it because apparently they don't even realize that he's a non-Egyptian. They think he's an Egyptian. He speaks without accent, Egyptian. But remember, he also speaks Hebrew. And he knows what they're saying. They don't know that. There's an interpreter there, but the interpreter's not interpreting. So he's listening to all of this. He's actually getting insight into what happened. He didn't know that Reuben tried to stop them from killing him and selling him off. And he's, he's, he's getting a little more of the picture of what happened behind the scenes when he's in the pit. And then, look at verse 24. He turned away from them and wept. He weeps. His, his heart is not hard toward them. It's soft. He's not harboring bitterness. In fact, remember that what he named his sons last week? Manasseh? The Lord has caused me to forget my affliction and the affliction of my house. Right? The, the Lord has, and in Ephraim, the Lord has blessed me and made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. He's put that behind him. And his heart is, is soft towards his brother. He's weeping. And that's what he's doing. He's, 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 he's searching their hearts. He's discerning. And here's the thing. What's happening just in this little story is like a, it's like a micro story of what's happening more broadly. Right? God is... What, what is Joseph doing? God has given Joseph a word. Joseph is a prophet. He's saving all the world through what God has told him. He is the one man. He's the man, right? He's the one with the food. Anybody in the world, in the known world, where do they have to go to get food? One man, Joseph. He's bringing about salvation to the world, but he's also bringing about salvation to this family. God is working at, at a higher arc in that same manner. He's working through this family of faith, through Abraham, through, Jake, through Isaac, through Jacob, through and on and on down through the generations to save a people. But he's also working, working at an even higher level to bring through this family salvation to all people. And that's, that's what's happening. So listen to what Bruce Waltke says. Joseph's providence mirrors God's in the larger frame. And we see what God is doing in his wisdom in orchestrating his salvation. If we, if we zoom the lens out, right, and get a bigger picture of what's happening, if we go beyond Genesis and we see the whole story of the world, we see that that, that is indeed what God is doing. He's bringing about the salvation of a people and then extending that salvation out towards the whole world. And at the very center of that picture, of that story, is Christ, Christ crucified. And when Christ was making his way to, toward the cross, nobody understood what was going on. We're kind of in that stage of the game with the Joseph story. It's hard to understand, like, what is he doing? Is he, what? Why is he doing this? Why is he throwing him in prison, sending them back? Why does he want Benjamin to come? What's going on? I don't understand. How is this helping them? So it is with Christ. He, Nobody made, on the ground in the moment as he's making his way to the cross, nobody understood what was going on. Even though he had told them that that's what he must do. They didn't understand. 
But it's, it's the means by which we're saved. He made careful, strategic moves towards the cross. And his death is the means by which we live. It's the means by which we're saved. And this is how God so often works on us. This, this grace, this approach of grace, it comes into dysfunction and its approach is with wisdom. It, it's, it's grace's wiles, right? It's hard to even understand. If you read St. Augustine's Confessions, he talks about his conversion experience. And there's a moment where he, really, he recognizes all of these little pieces of his life were working to the end of his salvation. That God was putting these people in his life and these philosophies in his life. All these things that were moving about. The same thing in C.S. Lewis's Surprised by Joy. He says in the chapter where he talks about coming to faith, believing in God, it dawned on him. The thing that he prized above everything as an atheist was, above all, his desire was not to be interfered with. And he realized that unbeknownst to him, God was poking and interfering with him at every turn. The the title of the chapter is Checkmate, right? God's strategy is moving towards Lewis in the course of his life. And boom, grace finds him. That's how grace works. It's grace's wiles. And it's working its way towards his family. And we're going to continue to see it as we make our way forward in the story in the next couple of weeks. Let's pray. Father, as, as, we, as, as we think about the brothers in their reluctance to approach uh, the man who they call uh, Joseph, their brother, we have reluctance, too, to come to you. There's something in us that, that fears, that recoils a bit when it comes to you. But you've come toward us in, in your grace, amazing grace. Give us a keen sense of that. You are good, and we pray that we would fall deep into an awareness of that goodness, that we would be um, transformed by it, by your grace. We thank you for the hope it brings and the hope it has for the world. Help us to be ambassadors and stewards of it, and help us to continue to be strengthened in it as we make our way through the rest of the service. We pray in Christ's name, amen.